Well, church, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1 as we consider uh, this wonderful account, a very kind of uh, simple account, if you will, of the birth of the Savior of the world. And so I trust God will uh, work through us as uh, you find your way there. If you want to uh, use the Pew Bible, you'll find that on eight, page 857. That's Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 1. And um, why don't I also invite you to our Christmas Eve service, as Cody already mentioned. It's going to be uh, actually half an hour earlier than normal. We're going to put it at 5 o'clock this Tuesday night. And if you've never been part of our Christmas Eve service, it's a, uh, one of my favorite services of the year. And it, uh, we're, we're, just, we're going to sing some carols. We're going to re- read the entire nativity story. Uh, the message, I promise you, will be f- much more brief than normal. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll take communion together, and then we'll end our time um, uh, with a candle lighting ceremony as we sing Silent Night together. It's just a lovely, lovely time. Very, very centering for me to center our hearts upon Christ. And so I trust if, if you can, you'll be richly blessed. That'll be uh, this Tuesday night at 5 o'clock. And so uh, here we are now in, in uh, Luke's Gospel, uh, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, which we can now set our hearts upon. It is a great and rich blessing to us, and I trust you would uh, very, be very pleased to speak to us through it, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask even now, dear Lord, that you would guide and lead us as we consider, uh, as we often do this time of year, the birth of our Lord. So be with us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. It was uh, Martin Luther, who of course was a, a great hymn writer, uh, himself on one Christmas uh, presented a gift to his son Hans, and it was a Christmas carol that Luther had written for his son. No less than 15 verses in the carol. I think it'd probably take me 10 minutes to read it to you. It was a lovely carol, but let me just share, you, share with you a few of the verses that Luther wrote. He said, From heaven above to earth I come to bear good news to every home. Glad tidings of great joy I bring, whereof now I will say and sing. To you this night is born a child of Mary, chosen mother mild. This little child of lowly birth shall be the joy to all the earth. This is the Christ, our God and Lord, who in all need shall aid afford. He himself your Savior be from your sins to set you free. Were earth a thousand times as fair, beset with gold and jewels rare, 
that yet we're far too poor to be a narrow cradle, Lord, to Thee. Our dearest Jesus, holy child, make Thee a bed soft, undefiled, within my heart that it may be a quiet chamber kept for Thee. That's beautiful, don't you think? Very, um, I think very moving, very comforting, um, of course very poetic, as these songs tend to be. And it's not at all how the Bible presents the birth of Christ. In fact, we read this account and it's, it's kind of jarring, isn't it? I mean, what does he say in verse 1? In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And by the way, if, in case you're interested, verse 2, this was, the, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Right? It's not very poetic, is it? It, in fact, it, it reads more like a newspaper article than a, than a Christmas carol. It's the, the who, what, and when. And so we're interest, introduced, of course, there in verse 1 to Caesar Augustus. Of course, that's not his given name. Uh, we would know him earlier as Gaius Octavian. Perhaps you know him to be the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, and he would go on to rule the Roman Empire jointly, at least initially, with a man named Mark Antony, both ruling side by side. Uh, of course, Mark Antony would become bewitched with the queen of Egypt, Cleopatra herself, and it would end up divorcing his wife, Mark Antony would, who happened to be Octavian's sister. And the result was the Battle of Actium, where uh, Octavian and Rome destroyed the Egyptian fleet, leading to the suicide of both Cleopatra and her beloved Mark Antony. At this point, uh, Octavian would solidify the Roman Empire and become its first really true emperor and assume the title Caesar. Uh, And soon the Roman Senate would give him an additional title, Augustus, which means holy one or majestic one. And thus we know him and Luke presents him to us as Caesar Augustus. You might be interested to know up until this point, the title Augustus was only reserved for the gods in the Roman pantheon. And so he would be the first Caesar to receive worship as a son of God. As it was said of him, Dominus et Deus in Latin, he is Lord and God. Uh, He was a a brilliant ruler, uh, came to Rome, it is said, and Rome was made out of bricks. When uh, uh, Caesar Augustus left uh, this world, Rome was made out of marble. At least that's what we're told. He uh, gave himself to building programs, centralized the government, regulated commerce and trade, strengthened the military, crushing all opposition, leading to what historians have called the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. And of course, he was responsible for building the famous Roman highways, which would soon carry the gospel throughout the known world. He was so revered that there remains an inscription in the Roman city of Halicarnassus that says Caesar Augustus. Savior of the world. If you were alive, I think, 2,000 years ago, um, your focus and everybody's focus would be on Rome and its Savior, one who claimed to be a son of God. The last place you'll be looking is a little town called Bethlehem in Judea, where in a stable, a poor Jewish carpenter and his betrothed have a baby and they name him Jesus, laying him in a manger or a a feeding trough. That little baby Jesus, by the way, would also claim to be the Son of God. He would also claim to be the Savior of the world. And unlike Caesar Augustus, uh, Jesus would actually save and continues to do so, even saving me 
and I trust many of you. And it's here that Luke presents his birth account. And it is somewhat striking, I think, when we read it, the humility in which the, the Savior is born. One of the carols we'll sing on Tuesday night will ask this question. Why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? And why is he in a stable, in other words? And so his birth is very humble. But you can also notice that his birth shows us the sovereignty of God and that it is presented to us as a historical birth. And those will be our three points this morning as we consider the birth of Jesus. First of all, notice, notice that Luke presents it as a historical birth. Again, in verse 1, he says, In those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so Caesar Augustus issued a decree... Uh, that there is a registration to take place throughout the Roman Empire, or census, we might call it, and it would, uh, it would count all the people of his kingdom. And evidently what Caesar Augustus wants, Caesar Augustus gets, as we see in verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. You would have a registration for two reasons. One, uh, really, uh, to cons- to, for power, he would want to know uh, how many adult males are in his kingdom, in, order, uh, in case they had to be conscripted uh, to defend the kingdom. And so uh, know this potential military might. Jews, by the way, were exempt from military service. So that wouldn't really apply in this situation. The other reason to have a registration was for money. Uh, you find out how many people you are, have so that you know how many people to tax. And uh, you, you might be surprised to know governments like to tax people. And uh, Rome is, of course, no exception. And so you would go and register, be registered, and what's your name, and what do you do for a living, and do you own any property, and uh, what's your family size? It was, like a, it was like a meeting with the IRS. And so this is what, uh, of course, Caesar Augustus demanded. And you notice that everybody needs to do this in what Luke calls their ancestral town, or their own town. If you remember your Old Testament history, when the people of God came into the promised land, it was divided up based upon tribe and then subdivided based upon clan and then family. And you remain tied to that that land, regardless of where you're living at that moment, that's your ancestral home. And so these households would actually return to their ancestral place uh, in order to be registered. Which means if something like that happened here, right, let's say it happened in 2020, uh, we do have a census, I think, coming up, but, but we don't have to leave. What if we had to leave? I'm nor, uh, you know, Loudoun County would be empty, wouldn't it? Because almost none of us are from here, and I would go back to California, and you would go uh, elsewhere, and, and the few locals would actually probably enjoy it while we're all gone for a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd all go home, right? That's where we're, we're from, and off we go. And so that's what's going on here. And you notice, by the way, that when Luke presents this, he has all these kind of historical details. you got Caesar Augustus and ancestral towns and decrees, and you even got this uh, Quirinius guy, in case uh, anyone's interested there, who happened to enforce the decision in Syria for Caesar Augustus. To Luke, this is a, a historical event. It's not a myth, at least in his mind. It's not an imagination. This isn't even some religious teaching. In fact, uh, Luke is known for this. Uh, just turn over to one chapter. Turn over to Luke chapter 3. And I, want to, I just want you to get the flavor of how Luke writes his gospel. He says there in verse 1, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of uh, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, and so forth. 
right? In, in, in other words, hey, this guy was ruling, and that guy was ruling, and this guy was over here, and this person was the priest. And he's setting for us the historical context, uh, the historicity of, of Jesus' birth. Luke is a very intelligent, articulate man, well-educated. We know him to be a, a medical doctor, and, and we know from this very prologue in chapter 1, he says, listen, I set out to write an orderly and, and uh, account of the birth and the life and, the, of course, the death of Jesus Christ. And uh, so he would go and he would actually, from what we understand, to interview the people who were eyewitness to these things. And so uh, it's not difficult to imagine that Luke one day finding Mary and saying, Mary, can I, can I have a mo- uh, you know, uh, some time with you because I want to hear, um, uh, hear about his birth. I want to hear how it happened. And I want to make sure I record it carefully and orderly. And I, I'm not interested in any embellishments. And I'm not interested in any in, you know, fantastic elements that weren't actually part of it. I want to record it exactly how it happened. And so what we get here is, is pretty mundane. It's pretty common. Uh, th- this very mundane account of the birth of the Messiah of the world. There's a census, some travel, a little trouble finding a place uh, to stay, a birth, some swaddling, and that's about it. That, that's what Luke gets us. The point, I think, that Luke is trying to drive home is that this actually happened. And if and Luke was only writing just a couple decades after these events, and if you wanted to, you could have gone to the registration, and you could have looked up uh, this man named Joseph and found out where he lived and, and, and what he did for a living and all the rest. This was a real man. In other words, this is not a fable. This is not man-made a story. This is not a made-up town. This is not a made-up scenario. These are real people living in a real place. And the reason I belabor this, and I know um, that I do this every once in a while, is because there are all these accusations in our popular culture that, that this is all lovely legend. Isn't this lovely? You know, the spirit of Christmas and all that. And uh, it just kind of symbolizes the hope that we should have. But let's just be very clear. That's not what Luke's intent was. Luke's intent is not to give us a lovely legend with symbolic language. He doesn't say, hey, once upon a time, or, or if you will, uh, uh, in, a, in a galaxy far, far away, right? That's not how he begins this. As if it's this wonderful story that we all know actually didn't happen, but we find it inspirational anyways. Luke starts, he says, you know when Caesar Augustus had that big census, right? That's when this happened. In fact, you know, that's how Luke presents it. But how do people learn about Jesus today? Well, I'm afraid what they do is they turn on the television and uh, they might stumble over to the, to the History Channel and, and watch one of their wonderful little documentaries where it just seems like critics just crawl out of the holes as this great opportunities to deny the truth of Jesus Christ. And if you're not watching a documentary, you could go watch a movie. One came out recently that has explains that uh, jo- when Joseph died, Jesus was a teenager and trying to raise uh, Joseph from the dead and, and sadly was unable to do so and kind of lost his cool and all the rest. Of course, there's no evidence of anything like that happening, but the people who watch these things have no idea. Or maybe you don't want to get your uh, history of Jesus from the television. Maybe, maybe you want to get, uh, get a big, thick book, right? And there's plenty of academics that will tell you this is all nonsense. Take uh, Albert Schweitzer, for instance, who said, quote, Christ was a deluded fanatic who futilely threw away his life on blind devotion to a mad dream. There is nothing more negative than the study of the life of Christ. Or consider George Bernard Shaw. Who claimed Christ was a man who was sane until Peter hailed him as the Christ 
and who then became a monomaniac. His delusion is very common delusion among the insane, quite consistent with the cunning that Jesus displayed after his delusion had taken complete hold of him. And so this is the kind of nonsense that's out there. Maybe you don't want to read a thick book. Maybe you want to read a thin book. You could go get a bestseller, can't you? And you'll find out, for instance, that Jesus, uh, you know, uh, as, as one recently explained, was a human mystic. He wasn't crucified. He ended up marrying uh, Mary Magdalene, lived to a good old life. It's just challenge after challenge after challenge is my point. It's just all over. We're just surrounded by it. And notice, by the way, all these challenges to our faith, they, they, they seem to concentrate, at least in my understanding, on Christianity. You don't find challenges like this to Hinduism, or Buddhism, or Judaism, or Islam. Right? You, you could put up a billboard, as they have done in New York City, that has Santa Claus on one side and Jesus on the other, right next to each other. And under Santa Claus, it says, keep the Mary. And under Jesus, it says, drop the myth. Okay? You could do that today in our land. But where's the billboard with Mohammed on it? Well, that billboard's not going up anytime soon. It seems to me that the attack that's coming from our culture is, is focused intensely upon Christ and Christianity. And, and the more our culture advances, the more progress we make, the more these people keep hanging on to Jesus, the more his churches keep getting planted, the more people keep getting devoted to him. He, it just seems like he will not die. And so they keep attacking. It's a myth, they say. It's a legend, they say. And I just simply would like to ask, what about the Bible? Luke actually had access to the primary witnesses. He is presenting this as an historical account. That's what Luke is giving us here. In fact, many people used to attack Luke's historicity by verse 2. They say, well, what, what about this guy Quinerius? we actually discover that Quinerius became governor of Syria in the year 6 AD. The problem is that's too late for the birth of Jesus because Herod ordered the execution of the infants a number of years earlier, so Jesus could not have been born on 6 AD. See, they said, Luke is wrong. That is until they found a fragment near Rome that honored the man who served as governor of Syria not once, but at two separate times during the reign of Caesar Augustus. And they don't attack verse 2 anymore. You see, Luke is giving us history. Now, I am aware, of course, that others don't deny that this, was a, that, that this is written as historical fact. The other accusation is that Luke wants us to think it's history, but it's actually lies concocted by religious zealots. Right? As one said, we don't know what the historical Jesus was like, but the idea he did miracles, rose from the dead, or claimed to be divine is written by church leaders consolidating power as they suppress other evidences about their teacher. End quote. In other words, all we know is what the church leaders wanted us to know, and they came up with these stories, and they wanted us to believe them as true, and so they presented them, just like Luke is doing, as fact, not as myth, because they wanted us to believe them, right? So they'll say, of course he uses towns and censuses and real people, because he's trying to convince us what he knows not to be true actually happened. 
And, that's, and so you add all these details to it, right? And you make it sound very realistic. Well, my friends, that's what we do now. But, but th- this, this idea of realistic fiction with all the, all the details that we read, that we enjoy, didn't happen until about 1,800 years after Luke wrote this account. That realistic fiction it was a new genre of literature developed about 200 years ago. Prior to 200 years ago, there is not a, his sing, not a single historical example of realistic fiction. You read all the ancient stories. Read Beowulf. Read the Iliad. Read the Odyssey and all the rest. They don't start like Luke 2.1. In those days a decree went out and Caesar Augustus and all the rest. Right? The ancient stories are not written like that. And C.S. Lewis, I think, is a, extremely helpful here. I know I shared this quote with you a few times, but uh, you'll allow me to do so one more time. C.S. Lewis, of course, an expert in ancient liter- literature, would write, I have been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they look like. I know none of them are like the Gospels. Of the Gospels, there are only two possible views. One, either this is reporting, or two... Some unknown ancient writer, without known predecessor or successor, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative 2,000 years before it happened. And then he ends saying, the reader who doesn't see this simply has not learned to read. So he's a professor. He has to condescend us a little bit, okay? But you see his argument. You can't say Luke suddenly started writing realistic fiction like we write it when it never happened before him and never happened after him for another 1,800 years. In other words, it is a historical impossibility that they are concocting a story they know didn't happen but want you to believe it and therefore write it like that. You may not believe it's historical, but they certainly did. The story of Jesus, the birth of our Lord, in Luke's mind, took place in a real time with real people and a real place. Now, we'll move on, but, but you, you, you might say, well, <laughs> listen, who cares? I mean, come on, pastor, let's go. Who cares? It's a, it, 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 why can't it just be a story? I mean... I mean, we got Mary, and we got the Christ child, and we got a manger, and angels, and shepherds, and magi. We got smiling cows, and all the rest. I mean, it's just a wonderful story. It's heartwarming. It doesn't matter if it happened or not. What matters is the spirit of Christmas, we're told. Was that right? What difference does it make? What makes all the difference in the world? Because... If it's just a heartwarming legend, then you get to choose to believe it or not. You could apply it to your life maybe a couple of weeks of the year and just leave it off for the rest of the time. It's not binding. It's not, a, it's, not, it's not coming upon you. It's not forcing itself upon you. But if it did actually happen, Christmas confronts us with objective historical reality that you cannot simply dismiss as personal opinion. You can't just put it in a closet. I don't often quote Larry King when I preach, but let me just do so this one time. He was asked, if you could interview anyone in history of the world, who would it be? His answer, Jesus Christ. 
They then asked him, if you could ask him one question, what would it be? King responded, I would ask him if he indeed was virgin born. That answer to that question would define history for me. I don't, this man, I don't think, is often right, but he gets this one right on the head. This would define history for me, and history confronts us. If this actually happened, what does it mean? It means God exists. It means God broke into history. It means your faith is not based upon some internal experience of the heart, but by what actually took place. Right? We don't believe in Jesus because he makes us feel good. We don't believe in Jesus because he helps help face opposition and trouble and trial. We don't believe in Jesus because we like Christmas music. We believe in Jesus because he actually came. He actually was born. God really sent the Savior of the world because people really need saving. And God did it. Because it's very clear to me and perhaps to you as well, that this was not only a historical birth, but a sovereign birth as well. A sovereign birth. You see, uh, in response to the census, people are returning to their ancestral home. One man, as we already know, a village carpenter named Joseph, who's at this time residing in Nazareth, has to travel down to Bethlehem. You see this in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Bethlehem, as you perhaps know, um, though a small little town, has uh, a number of uh, historical events that took place in it. It was in in Bethlehem, for instance, that Jacob buried his wife Rachel, who died in childbirth. It was in Bethlehem that Ruth was gleaning in the fields when she was noticed by Boaz. It was in Bethlehem that a uh, a little boy uh, named David would shepherd his family's sheep and go on to be uh, the greatest king of Israel, perhaps the greatest king in the world. And this is why uh, Luke calls it, as the Bible does elsewhere, the city of David, Bethlehem, the city of David. And now we're a thousand years later after David, and they're stirring in that city once again because a promise is about to be fulfilled. For God said to David in 2 Samuel and chapter 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, for you, uh, up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. And he, will sh- he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so off Joseph goes to the city of David. But he doesn't go alone, as you note in verse 5. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Mary was not, as best we know, required to go. This registration uh, was just for the heads of households. It's kind of like when you return uh, to the United States from traveling overseas and you have to pass through immigration and you fill out a form, and they always say, you know, one form per family, and so, so maybe dad will, will write his name down and his date of birth and his passport number, and then you go to the, 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 to the immigration officer, and, he, and the first question he asks you is how many members of, of your family are traveling with you, and then you go on, you speak on their behalf. This is how it worked back then. 
um, Joseph had this responsibility. He would show up and they would say, okay, what's your name? And where are you from? And do you have any children? And do you own your own house? And I mean, how many bathrooms does it have? And all the rest, right? They want to get all this information so they could, uh, so they could tempt you. And so Joseph needs to go. But the question then, I think that as many have asked, why would he take Mary? Mary doesn't need to go. Why take her on this four-day, five-day journey? In fact, you notice, by the way, Luke uh, explains they're still not married. What does he say there in verse 5? To be registered with Mary, his betrothed. His betrothed. And yet, uh, though they're engaged or betrothed, as we considered last week, you notice that's not the only thing to note about Mary. As we finish uh, verse 5, who was with child? So in the very kind of traditional religious culture, to be betrothed and with child are not two things you want happening at the same time. So, so it, of course, we're just speculating here, but it seems to me that, that Mary might have come along because Joseph wants to keep her close. He wants to protect her. He certainly does not want to miss her birth in case it might happen, for she is, as the King James says, great with child. And so he took her on this miserable journey. 80 miles trip from uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem, and she could have a, a baby at any time. Now, I don't know a lot of women who are about eight and a half, uh, eight months and two weeks pregnant uh, who want to walk 80 miles in the wilderness. When my wife was around that kind of stage in her pregnancy, it was hard just to get her in the car, right, to go to the hospital. And yet off Mary goes, walking. Maybe, as some of our, you know, our nativity scenes uh, suggest, riding a camel. Um, we're not sure. Perhaps wonder, You wonder if there's this fear. Maybe, I'll, uh, maybe I'll, I'll give birth on the roadside somewhere. How's this going to work out? In fact, one author says Mary was full term, which forced a slow rolling gait as she walked those 80 miles. Perhaps if she was fortunate, she had borrowed an animal to carry her, whatever her, their situation She traveled in dust, bearing the distressing knowledge that she might have her first baby far from home, far from her mother, far from nearly everyone who cared about her. You might think, why why in the world would God put them on the move like this? Why why send Mary down to Bethlehem, if you will? Well, we, we know the answer, don't we? Because it was 700 years prior to Caesar Augustus giving this decree that God gave his own through the prophet Micah, who said in chapter 5 and verse 2 of his book, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. God, speaking through the prophet, says, Bethlehem, you're insignificant, you're too little to be of any importance, and yet I'm choosing you, little town, to bring one forth who is from old, who is from the ancient of days, who is indeed eternal, and who will rule my people. And so the question then, if that's the the declaration of God, is how do we get Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Well, enter Caesar Augustus. 
And one word from this emperor and millions of people's lives are set into motion, among them two totally inconsequential people, uh, uh, just a boy named Joseph and his uh, uh, girl betrothed um, named Mary, and they're simply obeying the king who now occupies their land. And it appears to every single person in the world that Caesar Augustus is in charge, that he is ruling My friends, in reality, he's just God's errand boy. The greatest man in the world is a pawn in the hand of the omnipotent God. As we see the sovereignty of God in this story, God sets the world in motion. Millions of people going into their own city so that one prophecy can be fulfilled. In fact, Jesus kind of admired the details of how God arranges this. Because if this decree is given a week earlier or a week later, Jesus is not born in Bethlehem. He knows how long it is to to set up a census. He knows how long it takes for a pregnant woman to walk 80 miles. He knows all the details are going to happen. And he puts them all together so the Messiah will be born in the town in which he declared. Mary's sitting up in Nazareth, and God uses the greed in Caesar Augustus' heart to fulfill his word. And in fact, God would do this over and over. We see this throughout Scripture. Consider King Cyrus, for instance. I was just reading this last night. That the word of the Lord might be, uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to build him a house in Jerusalem. Or consider King Darius. The Lord turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in, in the work. Or consider King Artaxerxes. Uh, blessed be the Lord who put it in the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord. God is the one who orders the heavens and the earth, and he orders even the, the minds and the hearts of, of the rulers of our land. As the proverb writer said, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And certainly we see his great sovereignty here. And I, I, I therefore, I think you ought to take uh, uh, some encouragement from this in the midst of kind of the chaotic days in which we live. And we have, you know, all the kind of massive political forces at work. And they constantly are parading themselves on television and, and holding their press conferences and giving each other pats on the back. Aren't we great and powerful and doing our job? And you have all the, the craziness that's going on in the world and all the multinational corporations and all the power and all the wealth and, and all the the rest without even knowing it are in the hand of God. It's all in his hand. So Christians, stop freaking out. God is in control. And he will wield the world to bring about his good purposes, namely the good of his people and the glory of his name. And you then can have hope in the midst of hardship. Some of you walk in here with heavy hearts. Some of you come here in the midst of difficulty, persecution, uh, opposition, struggle, health problems. And there's, there's this question that just kind of scratches at the, the back of our brain. If God is powerful, then why is this happening? Why is my life not easier? Why is my loved one's life not easier? 
well, why make Mary walk 80 miles? Why have Mary give birth in a stable? Why have, why have them, the, the, these, these young couple do this alone? Because what God wants, I don't, I don't have all the answers to your questions, but I'll tell you what God wants chiefly is not your ease and it is not your comfort, but it is your righteousness, your worship, your holiness, your Christ-likeness. And I don't know how God's working in your life, to be honest. I'm not sure what he's doing in mine, but I do know that he will wield the world to purify his bride. And your role in the midst of it is faith. To fight the good fight of faith, the Bible says. To fight to believe in the midst of pain and uncertainty that God is faithful and he will keep his promises to you. And so in the midst of your hardship, let this story just reaffirm what you already know, Christian. That God is not weak, God is not cruel, that God is ruling kings and presidents and prime ministers and, and peasants and peons and all the rest to follow his secret decrees that we would be more conformed into his image and that his kingdom would advance. Our God is a sovereign God. And we ought to remember now, what God sometimes asks of us, which is incredibly hard, is not what he himself is unwilling to endure. In fact, he is willing, whatever he asks of you, he is willing to endure 10,000 times worse. And we get just a glimpse of it, perhaps here, and thirdly, a humble birth. It is a humble birth, isn't it? You know, verse 6, Luke writes, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth. That was pretty mundane, isn't it? Time time for her to have a baby? And she had a baby. And this is the most significant event in the history of the world, perhaps next to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is breaking into the world by actually becoming one of us and shall be united to our humanity forever. And yet it's so, so common. Time came, time to have a baby? She had a baby, right? And, and, and then what? Well, I mean, read on. And, uh, and she wrapped him, uh, she, she gave birth to, verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. She would take long uh, strips of cloth and, and wrap him up. That's what moms do. You swaddle babies. I've mentioned to you before, my, my wife is the queen of swaddling. Uh, she wraps the babies and the baby's head turned red and it looks like they're about to pop. And, and, uh, and she says, no, that's how they want it. They feel comfortable there. And, and I'm a little, a little bit concerned. She tells me not to touch them. And so I say, yes, ma'am. And, and, uh, right? But she's just swaddling them. Why, I mean, why, why mention that Jesus was swaddled? Oh, because Jesus is like any other baby. He, he, didn't, he didn't come out praying, right? 
He's not floating six inches off the ground. He doesn't have a halo upon his head. He comes out slimy and screaming. I mean, that's what Jesus came. He's a human being. He looked and acted just like we do. And so uh, what did Mary do? Well, she, she, she wrapped him up, cleaned him off, gave him some kisses, nursed him, and put him to bed. And in fact, she did the best she could, evidently, because she had to lay him, as you see in verse 7, in a manger, or what we might call a feeding trough. Based upon this verse, we, we think that she probably gave birth in a stable. In fact, we read on, we, and Luke tells us, because there was no place for them in the inn. See, Luke's asking the question, why in the world would someone lay a baby in a manger? Well, they couldn't find any other place to have the baby. And so they did the best they could and found a stable. Justin Martyr, who was a second century church father, said uh, the, stables, the stable most likely was a cave where they would keep, uh, keep animals. We're not sure. Maybe it's a wooden stable like your nativity scene. I don't want to destroy the fun of that, certainly. But it, it, might, be in a, it might, might have been a cave in uh, Bethlehem hillside. But I think regardless of, of what you have set out there on, on top of your piano or wherever you put yours, uh, we probably should erase kind of the, the hallmark pictures from our mind. I think this event, um, like many births, but in particular this one, was filled with, uh, with fear and pain. I mean, you kind of wonder, when did Mary start to feel the contractions? I mean, when did this all come upon her? I mean, uh, if she, again, she's like my wife. She might have started feeling them days earlier, maybe uh, halfway down to Bethlehem. Maybe, maybe she withheld it from Joseph, just hoping to kind of get through it, didn't want to admit it to herself. Maybe, maybe she finally told him with tears running down her face, as she, they know they're far from home. And she says, uh, honey, I, I think I'm going to have the baby. I think I'm going to have the baby soon. And so Joseph, I imagine, and we're not sure, but uh, made this hectic search for a place where she could do this. Where, I mean, where can we find a place for, to give birth? And the, and, the, and the best she could come up with evidently was, was some kind of stable. And it, well, a stable's bad enough to sleep in. I don't know if you've ever slept in a stable. That's not on my list of things to do. I don't think I'd like to spend much time there. But how about giving birth there? And you kind of, kind of imagine what's going on in Joseph's heart as he sees his beloved in pain and he's at the same time confronted with evidently the, the people's indifference, not, a, not willing to help out here. And uh, on top of that, he has the shame of not being able to provide as the head of this household. And perhaps even a little bit of fear mixed in there. I mean, he doesn't know how to help in labor. I, mean, he, I, I don't think they had classes back then. You know, breathe in two, breathe out three, or whatever it is, right? It's just a boy. It's just a teenager. I mean, you remember your firstborn child, right? And, and uh, it, it was, it was fear there, wasn't there? I mean, I think about my firstborn, uh, Anastasia Theodora. You could tell I was in seminary at the time, right? Uh, <laughs> resurrection, God's gift. And I remember my wife laboring for 14 hours. And I remember the pain because my wife won't take any medicine. She says, I want to feel the, I want to feel the childbirth. All right, we'll go for it. Um, and, and just the agony that she was in and the, the nervousness and pacing and the praying. Right? And we were giving birth in a Western hospital with doctors and nurses. These are just kids in a strange town, in a smelly, filthy stable, and there is no comforts for them. There are, is no ginger ale and ice chips, right? There's no, there's no midwives and there's no mother, there's no family. What we think is just a 14-year-old girl who's giving birth with her 16-year-old betrothed. 
I appreciate what Andrew, Andrew Peterson wrote when he said it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman's cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of Davidstown. And the stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold, and little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. Of course, bring in the actual labor. You think maybe Joseph might have cooled her head or prayed quietly over her, maybe shooed away animals. Perhaps he too wondered, God, why are you doing it this way? There's got to be an easier way. Why is it happening like this? We, we don't know how long she labored, perhaps through the night. Luke simply just tells us there, as we've already seen in verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. One person imagines, imagines it this way. If we think that Jesus was born in a freshly swept country fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched. Scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with a stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. As the trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space his face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. All unfolding in a stable of all place in a backwater province in the Middle East to a peasant girl and her blue-collared betrothed. And that's how God came into the world. It's interesting when you, when you read this passage all together, and it begins in verse 1 with Caesar Augustus up in Rome just making a command and setting the world into motion. And it ends there with the Son of God swaddled as a baby lying in a manger. It is a picture of, of power and weakness. And the question is, if God can move the king of the world, to call for an uh, empire-wide census in order to get Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem in time, couldn't he make sure there was room in the inn? Answer, yes. And he could have made sure that Jesus was born to a wealthy family. And he could have, by the way, turned stone into bread. And he could have called for 10,000 angels to aid him in Gethsemane. And he most certainly could have come down from the cross and saved himself. It is not what God could do, but God willed to do. And it was God's will that though Christ was unimaginably rich, yet he would become poor for your sake. 